All right, this is a very special, special Detroit is different, and I am slating with uh, a man that is still braving Detroit cold for some strange reason, and I have no idea why he's braving Detroit cold. Uh, <laughs> real cool guy. He's come out and he's uh, supported the movement in music. He's also supported the movement in business. Um, when I think of uh, working in organizations, working on behalf of businesses, um, just a, a great thinker, uh, good dude all the way around. Mr. Roderick Miller, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Oh, very well. Very well. Good to have you in the Detroit is Different Studios on this. Uh, what day is this? It's February, Saturday, February 17th. That's right. Um, I, I'm marking this as like the first dunk contest I've cared about in a long time tonight. Um, <laughs> in, in full festive gear, you're about to go see Black Panther tonight. So while I'm watching the dunk contest, you're going to be touching to our people. That's right. I'm, you know, I've got on my Wakanda gear. I didn't have any African garb, so I figured, you know, I'd put on my Detroit versus everybody black mm-hmm. hoodie, you know, to represent. So yes. looking forward to that. And, and 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 a Detroit versus everybody hoodie is almost like a dashiki. There's many black people that exist in Detroit, my friend. That's right. It doesn't get any blacker than Detroit. <laughs> no, it, it, it's there it's, are others that want to change that narrative, but you know, Detroit is Detroit. So like like I say, I've been here. I I, I feel out of sorts. Out of sorts, not seeing a lot of black folk around because that's just how I grew up my whole life. And talking about grew up your whole life, you're a, a, a southern, a southern child that made their way to this cold, cold city. How did it happen, my friend? Well, you know, it's it's been a long journey getting here, but from the time I was a kid, I always enjoyed the side. Well, I always, you know, looked at the quality of people's life. And I always had a tender heart. My dad was a Baptist preacher and a, and a, a military officer. Hmm. And, you know, and and growing up, we lived in Alabama and we lived in Germany. But in each of these places, I saw different types of poverty. And seeing different kinds of poverty, I really just had a heart to really work on issues of poverty alleviation and economic opportunity. And so, you know, the course of the career, you know, uh, after being in New Orleans for about four years, I got a call about the opportunity in Detroit and uh, came to Detroit in 2014 and uh been a real it's been a real journey and uh, i've enjoyed it okay all right so you touched on a couple different things that uh touched the souls of black folk deep first off baptist preacher what was it like growing up with the baptist preacher with a military background too i can imagine you had the strictest household ever you know i, I it was it's all i know but i love it i think you know growing up with the baptist preacher as a father really taught me you know the idea of values my you know my father um, really um, aim to live the type of lifestyle, you know, that I believe the Bible calls for people to live in and really trying to inculcate, inculcate those values in me and my siblings. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest of four. So, you know, I think that kind of purpose-driven, values-driven lifestyle was something that he inculcated, but also discipline, you know. Um, the, he didn't really want to hear your excuses. It was, you mm-hmm. know, the, his response to everything. He only had two or three responses. It was either make it happen or suck it up and drive on. Ain't that something? You know, so so you like, you know, today was a rough day. This happened, that happened. He's like, you know what? You know, I care because I'm your father, but most of the world doesn't care. So you need to figure out how to suck it up and drive on. So growing up, you probably had like a list of chores that were like uh, Saturday really didn't start for you till like three o'clock in the afternoon or something. Oh, you know, it's funny. My my sister and I, she's three years younger than me. 
Um, we once one evening we thought we were going to be smart, so we got up in the middle of the night Friday and cleaned up the entire house. I mean, top to bottom, you know, uh, spick and span. And then that morning we thought we were going to be able to sleep in late or watch cartoons. My dad came and he's like, "Man, y'all did an amazing job. I'm so glad y'all did the house last night. We got all this stuff outside that needs to happen. So we y'all can work on the yard. Y'all can clean out the cars. There's all this Ugh. other stuff. So Ugh. it's just a work ethic." Ugh. It's a work oh, ethic, man. work ethic, and, and discipline and values. Those were the things you know that my parents really inculcated in. And still, yeah. So I know as a kid, it was like, oh, this is the worst. But now, as you've grown up, you know, you apply I, yeah, that it's, to it's, life. it's part of who I am, so I, I can't complain. So it's like it was like your dad was Mister Miyagi. Oh, absolutely, valuable life lessons, and I think you know. Um, at the end of the day, when everything else is gone, it's those lessons and those and that way of being that kind of stick with you. Uh, it doesn't really matter, you know, what title you have, what job you have, but it's kind of the the core essence of who you are is how you treat people um, and how you uh, hold your head up in the world and what you do to make the world better around you. And I think that's what they taught us. Okay, um, what branch of the military? Army. My dad was in the army, mm-hmm. uh, so he was a chemist in the army. And uh, so, it's you like know. a timeout, timeout, timeout. A black chemist in the army. What, what, what years was he in the army? He was like, so, uh, so this was in the eighties, primarily in the eighties. So he was like, uh, it was like the one black dude that was a chemist in the army or something. Like your dad was was uh, Charles Drew or something. Like you know, it was, it was interesting. So you know, you're talking about a guy who whose parents only had a third grade education, like 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 wow. most people at that time, and when he. Uh, finished high school it wasn't really any pressure to go to college however you know he was a basketball star and he had four scholarship, uh, scholarships to four-year colleges but he was like I'm really tired of school so he went into two-year program and got out and couldn't couldn't find work and decided to go in the military and uh, mm. they tested him and he did a couple of things and they said wow you can be a chemist so the military trained him so he became a nuclear chemist in the army wow uh, and this is this was during the cold war so a lot of our dinnertime conversation stuff would revolve around things like, you know, the Russians and the U.S. policy of containment and, and perestroika and glasnost. That was part of our everyday mm-hmm. life because we were living in West Germany in the late 80s when the, when the wall came down. So those are really things that helped shape my worldview. Uh, um, you know, the idea that, you know, yeah, I'm very Southern. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm the son of a Baptist preacher, but living in Germany, living uh, on the border of Mexico and El Paso, Texas, and other places that we live, I really got to see the essence of humanity that all people pretty much want the same things. They want a better lifestyle for their kids than they had. They want, you know, they come together, people come together around food, they come together around music, and they want to be respected in the world. That's what that's what everybody wants. And so, you know, the beauty was I could juxtapose kind of the challenges of uh, of, of Southern black poverty to Eastern European poverty, to border town um, uh, um, Mexican poverty. Uh, and those are the things that, you know, growing up the way that I did really allowed me to see. Hmm. And uh, so it's it's been a, a great journey, uh, the first 40 years, and I'm looking to see what the next 40 years has to offer. Yeah, you still, man, such a young, young dude, too. Um, I... I I definitely just I'm I'm nerding out kind of on some of these stories about your dad. What was in his library? Because a black chemist in the '80s that's traveling the world. Mm-hmm. What books was he reading? So you know it's wild. So we 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 are in our house. That was the one thing you know this idea of reading being fundamental. So we read everything. You know, of course we read the Bible, but but in addition to reading the Bible, you know we read you know the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, we also wait. Read- I gotta stop there. I'm rereading it now. Uh, I think it's essential reading 
for any black male. If you have not, if you're a black man at any age, mm-hmm. you should read it. I I look to read it almost every four years, and it's weird. Like mm-hmm. every four years, I read it, and I've been reading it since I was fourteen. It is different things I pull out, like like the just in the transition, because so much of the story of of Malcolm X that I connect to is not, um, it's not necessarily. Uh, his what some perceive as radical but i think it's just more so just uh his idea of bringing in justice to black people but it's also just the transitions of thought and progressiveness of completely um embracing different thoughts on life uh the person i I give that book the most more so than anything the person i just gave it to is stretch money my friend the rapper so Mm. stretch is reading it now I don't know where he's at. He's probably like still like in like his mom. I'm I'm on Savior right now. Like okay. as he's getting out of getting out of prison, coming to Detroit, working at a furniture shop, getting paid like pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. So um, that's unique. I, I I love that book. I mean, I, I, one of the things about you know when you look at Malcolm X's story, it's really the story of black men. No matter where you are in America, there are elements of that story. I think that that resonate um, for for black men. Elements from everything from uh, understanding of your position in the world as a black man um, mm-hmm. to things to understanding how you as a black man see black people. All of those are things, you know, that, that we all grapple with in different ways. Yeah. And, you know, I, I often say that there's no way that a person can be black in America and not have some sort of ism or schism around us because society demands it for just survival. True. Um, so you either, one either has to accept the realities of racism and historic uh, uh, oppression and, and discrimination um, ha- has to either accept it, and as one accepts begins to accept that, either they, either they decide we're going to fight against it, or we're going to try and fi- figure out ways to blend in it, blend into it, so that it can be less impactful in our lives. Black people have to make those decisions every day, and I think you know, looking at black um, men, black women, and black relationships, I think there are a lot of challenges. Um, that are a direct byproduct of, of our history. I'm reading another book right now, and unfortunately the name evades me, but it talks about the um, the child-making, you know, um, uh, elements of of, uh, of slavery. And basically it talks about, there was, it was determined in my home state of South Carolina that, you know what, we didn't, we don't have to bring any more African slaves in if we can start these kind of child-bearing factories. So they would mm-hmm. find a young girl around 12 or 13 years old, and they, and they would sell her off as a breeder. And they would sell these young women as breeders and say, oh, this one can do 20 kids. We think they can do 20 to 30 kids in the next 20, 30 years. So we'll sell this one as a breeder. And so when you're talking about that kind of psychological trauma, decades and upon decades and century upon century of, of trauma in terms of the black community, a lot of the issues that we have today are, are much easier to understand when you think about the reality that women's bodies were not even their own and the men who would want to protect them had no power to protect them. A lot of the isms and schisms that we have in our community today from issues related to um, ability to commit to, um, um, you name it, um, poverty, uh, uh, all those kinds of things are direct byproduct of this of this history. And I think the biggest pain of America, quite frankly, is the is the unwillingness to recognize America's role in kind of the pain and the struggle of black Americans. I would argue, you know, that. I often feel more American when I, I do a lot of work internationally. I often feel more American when I'm traveling abroad because I'm recognized as American and get some of the privileges that 
uh, that white people, uh, white Americans get because I'm seen as an American first sometimes abroad, mm-hmm. um, which is which is really really interesting. Where I don't feel like I'm seen as an American here. My patriotism is questioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, my abilities are questioned. All of these sorts of things, and we can go down the checklist. I have all the things that white folks say you need to have to be an right. expert, to be a professional in American society. But my but my but because I'm a black man. The, the standards are different. And I think, you know, uh, America at some point has to reconcile, um, has to reconcile its history and its behavior with black people. Uh, you you just uh, said so much as uh, the church would say amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hood would say for show. Mm-hmm. I just generally say respect like the rosters I know. But mm-hmm. I, I agree on so many points. And then along those points, some of it is, um, you know, the post-traumatic stress disorder connected to the uh, enslavement and then segregation. And then also the, the idea of even what's being sold to, I would say, all Americans because uh, mm-hmm. white or Americans or whoever, right. like the, the idea of upward mobility, the idea of pursuit of happiness. Let's just stick to that whole concept yep. and uh, equal opportunity for all like that idea and that concept is being sold is mm. such a is such a it's a, like it's when a, you unpack it's it. It is beyond untrue. Like I was talking to somebody about uh, like when most people decide where they live, a lot of where people live has has directly to do with um, wanting a good place for their children. So then they start looking at school systems and then they talk about public schools are supposed to be this and public schools are supposed to be that. And then when you look into the history of public schools, the history of public schools kind of goes to the uh, the the funding by a lot of industrialists Mm -hmm. wanting to just teach people to read because the productivity of a person that could read to make more money connected to this industry was so much more money. It never was, um, it never was never an was embrace about, about like saying like we want people to learn. It was like, okay, we have to turn this agricultural worker into, into an, an industrial, industrial worker. worker. It never was like, oh man, your, your kid is supposed to learn. So being that some of the systems, especially when we think about school systems, mm-hmm. are still built in an industrial model. And the industrial model in America, I would argue, has far been like, it's, it's, it's cobwebs on that. And that's a lot of the challenges in Detroit. Um, when people say that every kid deserves a good education, I, I would argue like, I don't think that kids getting a Kids getting a good education was an externality of industry wanting to earn money. It never was, I want to make sure that these kids learn something. It was connected to something else. When we look at uh, the work that the Tuskegee Institute even gave to the white agricultural workers, because it was actually more of a learning gap for white Southerners to be productive in an industrial age than black workers, because the black workers were enslaved uh, during this era. Like a, a lot of that funding of Tuskegee's Institute to teach those white workers was built on like, yo, we want to make sure that these people know how to make bricks. We want to make sure that they know how to farm the best. We want to make sure that you know, those natural first black chemists like George Washington Carver, <laughs> mm. you know, that were honored as chemists, you know, mm. even though you can only imagine the amount of chemistry that was going on in a, a, a slave plantation where it's like, yo, I want to make this job easier so that I don't have to uh, work at, in these weird conditions as tough, you know, but, uh, you know, that yeah. was all a, 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 a externality. It was a byproduct. It was the symptom of somebody trying to make money. 
I mean, that's that's kind of at the core of kind of the 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 reckoning that needs to happen. There is a whole suite of values that we call American values. This these ideas such as self determination and hard work, and uh, and that uh, and that one does that one's own path is the byproduct of the effort that they put into it, mm-hmm. and that we live in somewhat of an, a system where where you know. Um, your work determines your 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 work determines your worth, and the reality of it is when we really unpacked our behavior as an American, our behavior as an American society, what we often see, what we see without a doubt, is that in very few cases was it really about the betterment of of people. Uh, a lot of these decisions are really about economic opportunity and economic Completely. interest. And so, then I would even argue that those economic opportunities are even suppressed. If those economic opportunities directly impact others that generally have more control of those economic opportunities, like everybody's heard the stories of like, you know, it's a person that made a car that can run on uh, that can run on water. And then GM bought it and and made sure that they threw those blueprints away because it's like if it were just all just, you know, nobody's in business to go out of business. So Mm -hmm. we look at. something that uh like certain things in my life i've watched and i said wow this i can't believe i'm watching this but then it's like i have to walk back into america and say man this is it is a business and it's a business-based company country uh the the oil spill of bp and first off calling it a spill is like suppressing the true impact of like the environmental damage that that caused but but it, it's a business. So it's like, no, nah, we're not about to stop pumping oil. We're going to keep pumping oil and we don't care how many fish it murders. We don't care what industry it kills. And even though this is a foreign based entity in America, I mean, it is what it is. And, you know, we're going to give some commercials. We're going to we're going to give some money. We're going to get the right PR campaign. And it is what it is. But do do, do we stop anything? Do, do we change anything? Are we going to are we going to change the structure? And it's like, nah, because BP is a part of one of the biggest industries that has existed tied to the industrial age because of plastics come from oil. Uh, 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 gasoline comes from oil. Like so many things come from oil. It's like we can't uh, we can't really impact one of the biggest uh, money-making industries in America for real, even if they hurt America. Whereas, you know, me or you in our backyard, if we ruin, I don't know, like one-tenth, you know what I'm saying? If we if we want to put a pool in our backyard and we ruin one tenth of what that's caused, I'm pretty sure me and you will uh, be on what we call what I call an urban vacation for the rest of our days. You know, it's it's the nature of the beast. I think, it's understanding kind of what what's realistic and how do you um, kind of do well and do good, understanding that there are limits in kind of the, the societal structures that are put on us. So the idea is like given the challenges of, of capitalism, given mm-hmm. the limits of capitalism, given the um, the uh, size, the expanse of greed that exists in our society, what are our, what is our role as individuals? In order to, um, you know, make things better for us as individuals in our family, but also for our community. So, you know, as I look at these things, I try not to look at them as just negative. I try to figure out you could in the in in this mess of a world that we have in this mess of a policy regime that we have. How does one actually uh, impact? And there are certain things you can control and certain things you can't. But 
And so the things that you can't control, you're like, okay, I want to push him, I want to impact him, I want to poke at him. But the things that you can, your your destiny, your your own um, sphere of influence as an individual, how do you impact those things? And so, you know, I'm at a phase of life where I'm really trying to figure out how do I have those kinds of impacts, the kinds of impacts that matter for the people that matter to me. And I, I think, you know, um, recognizing the the bigger challenges and saying, okay, we can we can chip at it this way and that way, and and making those steady efforts is good, and we should do that. But also recognizing that there is a sphere of influence that's ours, that's our own personal domain, and at times we've got to figure out how to take back our own personal domain mm-hmm. to try and do what we can for our, our families and for ourselves. And you and you touched on something, uh, a couple of different things in that, which brings me to the flip side. We talked a little bit about your father, your mother. What's your mother's background? Where is she from? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was she into? What influence did she have on your life? Uh, my mother was an incredible woman. Um, and I said was an incredible woman. She passed about four years ago of breast cancer. And my mother, you know, she was, uh, she and my father were high school sweethearts. Um, they're both from this small town called Manning, South Carolina. Um, how, uh, when you say small, how, how many residents? Uh, so my mom is from, my dad is from Manning, which is the big city, which has about 4,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> And, and my mom is from Alkaloo, South Carolina, which has about four or five hundred people. It's probably st- people still mad at your dad. It's like, it's four thousand people. It's like, yo, I was trying to hook up with your mom. People was thinking yeah. your dad was going to mess up. They you know, it's something, it's something interesting and beautiful about being from a place like that, you know. So my mother was the only girl of seven brothers. Huh. Um, so there were eight, eight children in her family, and she was the only daughter. Um, and um, my mother was also a minister. My mother was also an orator. Um, uh, growing up, she was an orator that traveled all around. Yeah. Um, uh, she, my mother was uh, first runner-up for Miss Atlanta in 1975, I think. Um, so she was. So my mother was into yeah, beauty. Met, met beauty. Mayor, mayor, mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my mother was into to you know she was into beauty pageants and speaking and mm. all that kind of stuff and ministry later. But growing up, she was really focused on us, you know. And it was and it was amazing. I think you know she. We owe her a great deal of, of gratitude, um, whether we were little and she was teaching us how to read mm-hmm. or whether it was her making sure that we did our homework or those kinds of things. Um, her, she's an LPN. She was a, a nurse. But but, mo- but most of our, our lives, she didn't work. Most of our lives, she uh, or she worked part-time, but she really focused on trying to make sure that my siblings and I um, had the right skills to survive in society. And so she really kind of uh, kept a, a very, very close, watchful eye on us. Okay, so that means you have seven uncles connected to your mom? Seven uncles connected to my mom. Ain't that something? That is something. You know, so they were very protective of my mother. Uh, My dad has all the stories from when they were dating. My dad was the captain. Uh, My dad and my mom's brother were co-captains of the high school basketball team. So he Mm. would go over to see, act like he was going to see my uncle and hang out, but he was really going to check out my mom. So, you know, so they had just an amazing love story. Mm. My dad actually wrote a book um, since she's passed away. And the book's called It's Not a Sad Story. It's a love story about, you know, just their life together Mm. and and how, you know, they really... um, work together, you know, in, in being parents, how they work together in ministry and kind of what those things meant. Hmm. Um, so I'm very, very fortunate. One of the things, though, about being from a, a small town like that, you know, is there's a very strong sense of community. So, you know, whether it was me or my siblings or friends, 
we knew that as we went out into the world to do whatever we were doing in the world, we didn't just represent ourselves. There was a strong sense that we represented our community and that, you know, when we do well, it's doing well for our community. And when we don't do well, it's also embarrassing our community. So the idea that, you know, if I went back today and I'm 40 years old, if I went back today and I started acting a fool in the street, there would be somebody who I may or may not know that would look at me and said, I can tell by the shape of your head and by the, by the way you mm. smile that you must be one of those Millers. You look like the Millers that live over there on Huggins Street and your grandparents would be ashamed if they saw you behaving the way you. Mm. And so there's that sense, I think, you know, that comes from being in a small town where there's such a strong sense of community around, you know, obligation to community and and um, and that your progress and your uh, your achievements in life and your failures don't just represent you, but they represent something that's much greater than you. The work of all of those people that came before. When I think about the legacy of slavery and the fact that, you know, my grandfather just died in the last year, but I think about his grandfather being a slave and what that meant. We, you know, that's how close we are to slavery. And so the fact that, you know, the grandson of a grandson of a slave you know, can go to Harvard University and have all kinds of, you know, educational and professional opportunities. What that means, I think that's part of the greatness of America. The flip side of it, though, is that, you know, that's not something, you know, that's and that's a, a beautiful thing. But the flip side of it is, as an American, uh, one should have the opportunity to do those sorts of things. It's not uh, America's done me a favor. It's that as an American that's worked hard, those are there's certain rights and certain expectations. So mm -hmm. I don't have any expectation that America should treat me any better than my white white brother or sister, but I want to be treated at least the same. And I so I think you know, as I think about the beauty of the way I was grown up, that I grew up, my parents didn't teach me to um, have hatred towards anybody. To but they also didn't teach me to think of myself as less than anybody. And I think that's part of the beauty of growing up in a place where the legacy of slavery was so strong, being in the rural South, mm -hmm. and the and the and the daily uh, interactions that reflect that le legacy were also very strong. But to be able to grow up in that environment, not be bitter, but recognize it for what it is, I think is a, a very, very powerful um, thing that my parents taught me. Okay, and you talk about recognizing it for what it is, is most of my family and a lot of people here in Detroit, you know, are uh, black folks, you know, that have families from the South. Uh, my family primarily comes from this small town called Mariana, Florida. Uh, Lord knows, I, I would never, you know, people love Florida, people love Miami, people love, to me, like, Florida is nothing but swamp. So it's like a different <laughs> type of hot, different type of humidity. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's such a small town that you can, like, you know, like, if it's, three o'clock in the morning you can go down the street wake up the guy that owns the store and then he'll open, open the store so you can buy something but i also think that some of these small towns all have a a, a a strong tie to black entrepreneurship that's different uh from what i've seen in, even in my family when, when you learn about getting those resources there and making sure that you actually like those personal relationships that you have with those families and the people in that community. Uh, who were some of the uh, black entrepreneurs that you remember from that town growing up? And, and then uh, what, what are they doing in business now? Like what what relationship did they have with their customers? You know, it's an interesting that's an interesting question. So I'll start close to home with my great grandfather, my, my mother's um, grandfather. He um, he ran the uh, he ran the corner store. Mm -hmm. The corner store, you could go there and you could get a freeze pop and you could get, you know, some candy. Um, you could get little snacks. Um, he had a gas station there. Um, that was one of the neighborhood businesses. There were there were no other neighborhood businesses out in out in 
actually, you know, we're we're getting really myopic now out in Cypress Forks, which is where <laughs> which is where I really live. So mm-hmm. Cypress Forks, out in Cypress Forks, there was there was nowhere to go buy bread. There was no basic services. So my grandfather ran my great grandfather ran ran that store, and then my grandfather, my mother's father, he he ran. Um, he had a farm. They had a farm. So I grew mm-hmm. up. Um, uh, my gosh. Uh, shelling peas, picking, uh, picking up, uh, picking watermelon, uh, pe- feeding the hog slop, uh, going to get the eggs from the chicken coop, and we would, and my grandfather and I, we would go out riding, and I would be on the back of his truck selling the the. He had people that had subscriptions back then for you know, for um, fresh vegetables, so he'd go deliver the peas or the collars or whatever, hmm. and I would work with him doing that every summer. So um, like this, kid going up. these concepts that get, you know, n- new ways, you know, like the whole like uh, delivery box service and everything. Like oh, I no, say, we were doing that back in the 80s. You were doing that then. But some of those small town entrepreneurs that have the different understandings, like it's a different relationship you have with these people when they are like maybe, you know, 600 yards that way. Absolutely. 700 I mean, yards it, it, that way where you, you know. know that person's going to want this ear corn. They'll take that ear corn. That's you know right. they're going to want this chicken. You know they're going to want. That's exactly right. And you'd be like, you know what, Sister Susie, you can't pay me this time. We'll just put that on your thing whenever you whenever you get it. You know, we, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. So it was that, you know, mm. so we had, you know, people had credit. And the credit was just the reputation because you mm. knew that they were going to be back, you know. And you knew that they, you wanted to ha- have this person as a customer. And they also knew that they wanted to have, be able to come back to you for something else in the future. So it was like that. It was like Miss um, Miss Shirley, who mm. was the... Um, who was a seamstress, and Miss Shirley had the little boutique, and my mother would go to Miss Shirley's boutique, and she would get clothes, and Miss Miss Shirley would would ta- would tailor them and, and customize them to my mom's taste, you know. So we grew up around people that were um, industrious, and so we figured out how to how to how to provide the things that our community needed, no matter what that was. And so it was it was great being in in a society in a community that had that self sense of um, interdependence. And and then it's like a different sustainability. And as you talk about that interdependence, uh, when people, you know, it's so funny that like, you know, you you almost go forward to go backwards a little bit. Now people talk about like you want to make the 20 minute community. You want to make the 10 minute community uh, even further out than that distance. I think some of those small towns just being that I would have to visit them. And Lord knows it will wreck my mind when I was a kid. being there but now in business as i think about really the people dynamic matters so much but having intrinsic relationships with your customer base that is so close-knit that's absolutely right like your granddad had a competitive advantage in business that Mm -hmm. uh people like me and even Mm -hmm. you as a consultant would die for that's because exactly right. not only do they know what it is, it's like, no, I have to really rely on you to deliver what it is. I, mm. You know, it wasn't a a, a a LinkedIn, wasn't an Amazon. I can't just, no. you know, go, you know, find no, the next right. person that can do this. It's like, this is my vendor. That's your vendor. And I need to make sure that they're going to have what I need. And then the vendor can turn around and say, all right, look, for what you need. You're gonna need to give X X X X X, and you're not gonna be able to try to uh, compare me. You know, it's it's no it's no Yelp. Yep, that's right. You you really have to build like like as you say like that reputation matters so much because it, it'll get to the point where if your reputation gets too bad, 
You're going to completely right. go out of business from everybody. That's right. That's right. So how long did your granddad run his, uh, run that business? He ran it his whole life. I mean, he passed away. Um, that was my great-grandfather in terms of the store. He passed away in the late 90s, and uh, he probably ran it 60 or 70 years then. And then my other grandfather, of course, the farm, he ran that farm his whole life. He also was a truck driver, so he retired from truck driving as well. So, mm. um, so this idea, you know, it's always, you know, two, three jobs. You do what you have to do to make, make ends meet. You do what you have to do to support your family and support your community. And so uh, uh, it's really, you know, I look at that. And then on the other side of my family, on my, on my, on my, on my father's side, his, his mother was a, um, an operating room nurse hmm. who never really, um, remember, third grade education. But she became an operating room nurse probably in the 1940s, um, something like that, in the 1940s. And she was just good at it. And what was interesting, she never went back to school, so she would end up training all of the nurses that would come out of college that were actual operating, that were actual licensed nurses. But mm -hmm. they would train my grandmother would train them um, on on how to work in the operating room. So it's just an interesting time when you look at the types of talent that people had and have, and the reality that in our country we don't have the appropriate mechanisms to allow people to um, reach their fullest potential or we allow them to reach their fullest potential under our under our control whatever systems that we you know, believe yeah. are the systems we've deemed as the Adequate. the, the author, authoritative uh, yeah. yeah i mean so quite so quite frankly you're talking about a woman who in the 1940s had a knack for for operations and surgery and stuff who had only had a third grade education so who goes and, and works for 50 60 years after that in the hospital system, mm -hmm. you know, um, basically um, training nurses, all these kind of things, but was never really recognized and never really had the opportunity to optimize her her earning potential or her, her posture in society because of what these societal constructs. So, and that's not a that's not a a knock on society's construct. It's a recognition of it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that's the beauty and the pain of America because the beauty of it is that she only had a third grade education and she was able to do so much. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, given the talent and the abilities that she had, she should have been able to do so much more. Which uh, kind of goes into the, the discussion you kind of ran into coming to the interview a little early, where I was just talking about the value of social capital. Mm -hmm. But social capital, uh, street smarts, but these things that are generally not quantifiable. And, mm -hmm. and I, I'm going to say this. I believe that the, the concepts that are not as easily quantifiable where... Middle-aged white men are are most successful, are not valued to the 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 degree that they're supposed to be valued in the society. As that is, in a lot of ways, the systems that validate anything or anybody. Because even the concepts of uh, like like uh, when I look at the 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 most successful business people. I really think your great grandfather is. I think mm. the person that's in business the longest is the most successful, mm. especially when you've worked your system where you know what you need um, without you thinking to yourself you like yep. the whole like yep. I need to explain. I need to make sure that I can do this two towns over and then mm. three towns over. Mm. I need to find a me version in the next town mm. and then I can make more money. Like I don't think that that's success. I think working a system mm. where it works at uh, at, at the at the level that you needed to work at for for, your for what you need to do where it sustains the longest period of time is a successful business mm -hmm. you know so mm -hmm. I definitely would rather read 
your great your great grandfather's book, which mm-hmm. I can't get on Amazon, the Elon Musk book. Mm-hmm. But I, I have Elon Musk book, but I don't necessarily honor him as like this great business mm-hmm. theorist because mm-hmm. I think when you know when you get more lending into the pot, when you get other thinkers into the pot, it's a it's a different. It it moves you the further away you move from the relationships with your actual customer base. Mm-hmm. It's it's probably not going to be the business that I'm gonna have, and that social capital matters so much. Yeah, the social capital it really does matter. It's a understanding of who your client base is, uh, understanding of your product and the value that your product provides, and being crystal clear about it. I mean, there's so much value in that, and 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 part of the beauty when you look at communities of color that there's not the depth of understanding overall by a greater society, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of, of how social networks and values um, uh, as a subculture, how they how they play out in terms of our everyday lives. And I think there's a lot of opportunity um, that are that's still on the table. I will tell you, I had um, a meeting. I'm not going to say the name of the company, but I, mm-hmm. I was speaking to a major, probably top 10, um, top 10 kind of internet-based technology company, kind of a household name. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to the senior leadership of that group, and one of the questions I asked, we were t- t- talking, and I mentioned Black Twitter, and they did not know who Black Twitter was. Mm-hmm. And it blew me away that you had this group that was probably like, if I said name a technology company, it would probably be the first, second, or third name that people would mention. And that they they were so unfamiliar with the idea of Black Twitter, which goes to say that there's a lot of value I think that's locked up in communities of color mm-hmm. that can be tapped by people in communities of color because we understand how the how oh, these yeah. communities work and the and and the value there. But in many cases, there's not the access to capital because the the cost of entry into certain markets is so high now. So the idea is okay, you can have this great concept. But the hurdle to get in there might be $2 million or the hurdle to get into that market might be a piece of policy or legislation. And because, you know, people of color historically haven't had those levers um, under their under their purview, under their control, it makes it extraordinarily difficult, which I think which is part of the reason why for for many entrepreneurs of color, the business tends to start at the level of neighborhood base because the capital threshold is a lot lower. But I actually think when you think about a lot of these entrepreneurs, they're a lot more savvy they understand their market better than anybody else and mm-hmm. given access to capital or some a lot of the other things that um, larger, more established businesses or white businesses, frankly, have, um, mm-hmm. it would be a different game. Even even some of those neighborhood white businesses, uh, it's the same thing. Like, y- you get into these discussions, as mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody about SEO. As you know, uh, my marketing firm, I'm big in the tech, but just because I'm big in the tech doesn't necessarily mean that I offer it to everybody. And I try to, uh, like, I-, I walk with, like, what what's true. And I'm like, SEO is developed for a particular business that really goes down to, like, trying to sell specific products in mass mm-hmm. over 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 like uh the the complete um internet so like you paying for seo you're you're, you're buying into a system where you know you easily could be spending fifteen thousand dollars a month and it's best suited for like having a t-shirt or one particular hat or one particular uh travel-based uh company or like you know dollar shave club or something like that like it's not for your business uh the best analogy i have of this is um you know, most of my time growing up, you know, as a hip hop artist, 
I I have these friends that say, man, the best studio has to be this this uh you know the studio that costs seven hundred dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. But it costs seven hundred dollars an hour because it, it's set up for an orchestra to go in there. If you're a rapper and you're just going in and you taking a track, you shouldn't pay for the seven hundred dollars an hour. Absolutely. Those are resources designed not for you. And just cause the but this is another level of like uh, scarcity and looking at things as like in in the American value system of we think that because it costs more. That it's better. It's better, but uh, it's not designed for you. And I think there are a lot of um, systems because nobody really explores a lot of the 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 this this form of like neighborhood business or black small business or black startup business. Yeah. And and this whole world is not even really being tapped into, but you can tap into it. And the value there is so huge. It's amazing. I mean. Thinking about Black Panther and kind of the impact that that's already mm. st- having in terms of how people are responding to it, and people don't, and non-black people by and large don't understand why. Yeah. Um, but when you live in a society where everything is, you're told that everything isn't for you, that your race is, you're told both um, directly and and, and 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 subversively that your race is a, a weaker race, a less intelligent race, a less uh, human race, a more barbaric race. And uh, and the opportunities are limited when you see something that glorifies, you know, the uh, the fact that you're human, and that mm-hmm. and that you have the complexity of any other community. Uh, that's a very very empowering empowering thing. And so you know, it's interesting to watch that. Uh, but I look at whether it's something like Black uh, Panther or Barack Obama being president. Um, mm-hmm. There are a lot of markers in society that show the progress of society. But unfortunately. As much as we see the progress, we also see that in those contexts, um, there still remains a double standard. Oh yeah. And so, and so you know, that's kind of the, the nature of the beast. But uh, but the beauty is that I think there is economic opportunity locked up in there. There's oh, yeah. opportunities for social progress locked up in there. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of things that are locked up in there. And it may not be at the same scale as other things, but progress is progress. So I think we have to continue to find ways to, to tap into social networks, tap into history, tap into culture as ways to move things things forward. Yeah. Um, and that brings me into like just the natural next discussion. You were a part of a class of black folks and and it's more but it's still a particular class uh that has touched grounds in the ivy league schools Mm -hmm. what's that like what what is that experience like um it's already being a black man in any college is you're you're already an outlier as um you know my whole time just going through college if I see it, it'd be weird because you know you see another black guy and then you'd be like, "What up, man?" And then he's like, "Hello, how are you?" And it's like, "Man, you a foreign student?" But it's like, but he dressed like, you know what I'm saying? Yes, like, indeed. man, you a black dude from Germany? I thought, I thought you were from, uh, you know, I thought you were from Seven Mile. You know what I mean? But um, what's that like? Yeah, it's interesting. So you know, I um, I had a, I had such a varied educational experience. I um. Went to a historically black college for undergrad, St. Augustine's University in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. I uh, was a student body president and trustee on the board and got to do, and that was amazing because it was such a diverse uh, mix of black folks. You know, about a third of our students, somewhere between a fifth, a fourth and a third of our student population was from uh, the Caribbean and Africa. So, uh, which is a different, a, completely a different, different. You you were like that black folk. It's like, what up, though? No. And then he's like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Exactly, you know, and so it was interesting because it, it, the beauty of the HBCU experience is that it really allowed me to see the gamut 
of, of kind of, of the black experience from folks that grew up very middle class, folks that grew up poor uh, from all uh, all around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. And then to, to go from there and then I did a Fulbright fellowship in, in, in Mexico where I did a master's in finance. Hmm. And then I went to Harvard and did a master's in policy. And what was interesting about going to Harvard was, you know, the first week there I was afraid that they were going to realize they made a mistake and kicked me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, you know, but 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 what was what was great about it, I think probably a week into it, I realized as people talk, I said, they got they have some idiots here at Harvard as well. They've got mm-hmm. some people that are really, really smart and they've got some idiots and you know what, I can hold my own. And what's and I think what it was a tremendous um, boost for me being able to be in that environment and really understand kind of um, how much of it is just exposure, how much of mm-hmm. um, intelligence, you know, the idea of intelligence is the ability to manipulate information, manipulate data, to be creative with it. And But there are a lot of people who are able to do well in these kind of environments, these Ivy League and other, that, that, not that they're so smart, but that they've got a bunch of knowledge. And so what I realize is that the things that are, um, that are knowledge are a byproduct of exposure, you've been taught it. You've had the chance to visit it, and you had a chance to see it. You've had the chance to test, t- taste it, touch it. You know, you've experienced these things, and as a result, you gain knowledge. But intelligence is the ability to take diverse pieces of knowledge from diverse camps of, of thinking, mm-hmm. diverse philosophies, diverse subject areas, and fuse them together in ways to come up with new concepts. And so, what was interesting for me about my experience at Harvard was that it really showed me that not, that I was as smart as anybody else, but the difference was there were things that I, that some people had been exposed to and I hadn't, and some things I had been exposed to and other people hadn't. So it really kind of gave me a platform to think about how do I expose myself to the things that are going to allow me to do the types of things I want to do in life and in society. And so um, so I you know, I had an amazing experience there. I went to the Kennedy School of Government, and, um, and it was phenomenal. Okay, okay, so Kennedy School of Government, and then life is going on throughout this whole point in time, too. Um, it's still, you know, like I think um, I look at like your story mm-hmm. and and we're basically we're, we're in the same uh, hip hop age class. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and you're touching all these different people. And uh, I have another homeboy that just finished uh, this special uh, a special master's program at Harvard. And, I was, and before he went, I was like, yo, man, you realize I was like, you realize you're going to be sitting in class with like senators and stuff. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, now mm -hmm. that that level of like networking on that level and then just that brand itself is a brand that America has honored and then businesses want to honor and then take and it opens up certain doors and creates different opportunities. So, like, as you're in that place and space, what is just going on in regular life? What's happening with uh, with you, your family, uh, dating, family? Like what's happening now? No, while you were in Harvard. You know, it's interesting. So I would say that, you know, I am, I don't know if this camera's on or not, uh-huh. but I'm a dark-skinned brother. Uh, uh-huh. I'm chocolate. And um, and growing up as a dark-skinned um, black male in America, but especially in the South, mm-hmm. um, I had a lot of self-esteem issues um, as a young person growing up. Um, mm-hmm. My self-esteem issues were... Um, I can't be attractive because look how dark I am. I can't be smart because look how dark I am. One of the things that we, you know, we have, we've not really talked about, you know, in black, in the black community a lot is that, you know, whether overtly or covertly, a lot of times we tell, we tell stories, pictures tell stories. So when I look at 
black and tell you know a lot of the people that I mean, were educated even, even like let's let's think when we think of the concept of black intelligence we think uh, of in this modern we think of we think of not just Thurgood Marshall but let's let's go a step deeper to him we think of the talented 10th theory mm-hmm. W.B. Du Bois mm-hmm. and everybody that was at that mm-hmm. <laughs> Niagara conference other mm-hmm. than one mm-hmm. was definitely a more fair skin or colorism that Absolutely. does exist uh, my family uh, even connected to my family it's, it's this book called Our Kind of People I don't know if you've uh, ever I, read of it. course uh, okay alright Our Kind man. of People goes right into the whole idea of like you mm-hmm. know if you're if you're so, a light skinned black person you're mm-hmm. you're provided different right. uh, accessibility right. and right. what's crazy is my one of my uncles uh, first black uh, first black judge in Ohio uh, mm-hmm. Judge Joseph D. Rulak, Akron, Ohio, uh, and, and they make reference to like his story, even though I think his story is different. But um, you know, it, yeah. it does exist. There are certain social so, classes of uh, you 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 expect yeah. to see. I mean, people make the argument even with Barack Obama. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if he'd have got those votes if he was you know if he was five darker, shades darker. Or, you yeah, know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know. And so I think you know. So at that point in life, I was dealing a lot with that stuff. I was dealing with, you know, what does it mean to be a, a dark complexioned black man in kind of the top tier of kind of uh, uh, of academic society um, and in kind of the elite social circles. But knowing at the core of who I am, I'm just a little country boy from Alkaloo, South Carolina. What does mm-hmm. that mean? And so at this point in life, I mean, I think I was navigating internally. Uh, kind of uh, uh, juxtaposing kind of the history of my family, the history of my people, uh, and my ambition vis-a-vis the reality of the world in which I I, um, I rotated in. So this idea of being able, not just being able to code switch, but remain authentic in uh, my interactions with people and in my path while not... Um, alienating myself from this new social circle that I found myself in. So that's so that's really where I was. And I think, you know, during that period, I was uh, I, I played with the band. I, I play a variety of instruments. So I played with the funk band while I was in school. So that was one of my now, that's escapes. That's something I didn't know. What uh, <laughs> variety of instruments? Okay, which one would you, uh, if, if, if you had to sit in with, um, I know this, this can't happen now, but okay, a couple years back, if you had to sit in with Prince, what are you grabbing? Piano. Okay. Yeah, piano. So keys, keys Keys, one, keys one. Yeah, but I, but I play you know piano, organ. Uh, Also uh, was a percussionist, but really preferred the bongos and the congas. Oh, okay. Uh, So play a lot of that stuff. So I played. So I played when I was in when when I was in Spain. I played uh, with a Cuban and sang with a Cuban group called Tres Mas Dos, and I played son cubano. And then uh, and when I was in grad school at Harvard, I played with a funk group called Dollar Out of Fifteen Cents. And uh, mm. so I enjoy, so the name of this new podcast that I'm starting. <laughs> it's I really like it. yeah, so, I like uh, it. I mean, so, so we um, so, you know, so music was has always been kind of one of those things that even while I was in school allowed me to escape and really kind of find refine myself and kind of center myself. It was a, a way that I could get away. So during this time, I was doing that. I was dating a little bit off and on, but nothing serious um, while I was in while I was in school. I really just trying to figure out life and kind of what I wanted to do. Okay, so after that, where were you at? So, uh, so I ended up moving to um, to uh, the Washington D.C. area. Ended up getting mm. married. Um, mm. uh, uh, was married for about ten years. PG uh, County. What was PG County like, and uh, what what era? What 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 years? So this. So you're talking about the uh, two from probably roughly ninety nine, two thousand to maybe two thousand four. 
2005 was when I was okay. spending a lot of time in that area. So my ex-wife was from, she's a, uh, from Fort Washington, so she's a PG County princess. And uh, <laughs> and it was an interesting place because, I mean, okay. one of the things I love about the D.C. area, there is such a strong black middle class. Yes. Uh, so it was, it was great because it was such a strong black middle class in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and, and it was a very conscious black middle class. So I really mm. enjoyed um, living in the D.C. area because that really allowed me the opportunity to connect with people who who shared similar stories, similar backgrounds that had, you know, had opportunities to, to move forward. Now, so. now uh, you've, you've touched a couple of different places like Southern. And, and then I also say like that DMV area is different just on the strength of like you got a lot of black people working for the government. So it's a different perspective of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, not saying necessarily that they're, they're not honoring uh, mm-hmm. the challenges that do exist uh, in, in racism and institutions or whatever, but it's just a different, you know, mm-hmm. th- that's one of the few places that like you will sit around and say, man, I'm sick of, and then somebody will be like, man, I work for, you know, so w- what was that like? Just seeing so many people that work with and connected mm-hmm. to the government. I mean, I think part of the challenge of the D.C. area is that everybody is trying to figure out how do they position themselves for um, political office or, you know, things revolve around the hill, revolve around the belt mm-hmm. line. And so I think, you know, the the, the the interesting side of that is that you're always in on the loop of what's going on politically. I think most most people that live outside of the belt, outside of the beltway don't necessarily have the level of awareness about what's going on in politics, in government, et cetera, et cetera. So being in that area, you find that you're really, really especially tuned into policy discussions. Uh, I also find being in that area, you're also very aware of not just the networking component, but mm-hmm. the political component of, of stuff that you say that anybody could be around you. And But I think overall it was, it was fun because you were able to not only engage in those dialogues, but you were able to engage in dialogues about the stuff that happened with people that are actually influencing those conversation, writing the policies, um, briefing the senators, et cetera, et cetera. So you were there when 9-11 happened? Uh, so when 9-11 happened, I was actually, I, I was at Harvard. I was in my second year at Harvard, and uh, and the school had just started, and every summer I would go back and forth to D.C., but I was in my second year there, and I remember someone coming and saying, you know, we've been attacked, and me not believing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't believe that that could have happened. Uh, but 9-11 was, you know, it was one of those moments where I think everybody remembers where they yeah, were. where they were and what when, happened. When, when they heard about it. Now it's, it seems like just part of history, but it was really impactful and I think eye-opening to the extent of um, our failure as a country to effectively tell um, our story and to effectively um, have a moral high ground because I think mm-hmm. there are times when we have a moral high ground when it's convenient and other times when we don't have a moral high ground. Um, because it's not convenient to us. And I think, you know, part of that has has led to resentment in other parts of the world. So one of the, I think one of the challenges uh, of, um, of American diplomacy is how do we show consistency in terms of the value system that we say that we espouse as Americans, not just abroad, but also domestically. Okay. So from there, 04, uh, it's still George W. in full effect. You weren't there to... Uh see what Barack Obama DC looked like. Yeah, I moved to Arizona. So I moved to Arizona. Um uh, so I moved to Arizona in oh four, no job, you know, but just faith and being like, you know what, I want to get out of the cold. 
and uh, and I want to go somewhere that might be you good for me. definitely picked a, a warm place, my friend. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I wanted to do something. And so in, in where, where at in Arizona? The Phoenix area. And so okay. that's when I fell into economic development. I ended up being the uh, assistant director for a town of Glendale, which is just northwest of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And then from being the uh, assistant director in, in Glendale for economic development, I did about 6 million square feet of real estate deals, hmm. the Cardinal Stadium, uh, the Arizona Cardinal Stadium, the Coyotes Hockey Arena, that kind wow. of stuff. Then ended up moving to the Regional Economic Development Group, Greater Phoenix Economic Council, 23 different communities, hmm. leading strategy, economic strategy for, and then ultimately ended up leading their international foreign direct investment program, so attracting global companies. So I was in Phoenix until... So you were like hitting a stride where it's like, wow. It's like, man, these people listening to uh, good ideas right here. Yeah, I mean, it was great. I, I put together something called the Arizona Global Network, which mm. was a, a, a collaboration of economic development entities, universities, state economic development organization, but focused on bringing in foreign direct investment, foreign still, companies. Is that still in effect? Yeah, so, um, so we actually lobbied to get the money to hire contractors offshore to represent the state of Arizona. And what it was really all about, it was really about trying to figure out, you know, foreign companies that invest in the U.S. pay on average wages of north of $80,000. So significantly higher than the median wage uh, of of the U.S. They also tend to have much higher capital investments. So the goal was to really figure out how do you bring in these high-powered, high-valued investments that are going to create quality jobs. So it was a high-wage job strategy. So did that there. And so Phoenix was great. And, uh, and then uh, in round two, th- and then wait uh, before you even leave Phoenix, you know I have to ask this just for my uh, Latino uh, brothers and sisters, like Phoenix, and we we think of Arizona just strategically. That's a strong conservative place, but also just like that back and forth of uh, what's happening when it, it's so weird. It's such a weird discussion where people say like these are illegal immigrants, and it's like uh, you realize that like what was like that was all Aztec. Uh, that was all Aztec territory in the first place. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this whole concept of Louisiana purchase of selling, quote unquote, land where people live and mm-hmm. it's a part of these tribes or whatever. Like what doing economic development there and interacting with, um, you know, the brown community. Uh, what what was that like? Uh, how present were they in the rooms uh, as that type of work was being done? Uh, when it came to development, contracting, opportunity, yeah. uh, what what was that like? Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I would I would break that down in a couple of different ways. One is the, just the politic of Phoenix. Phoenix is a place where eighty five percent of the population in the Metro Phoenix area is not was not born there. So, whereas you've got places like Detroit or places like New Orleans and other places where I've lived, where you've got a population that a lot of it's being driven by people who grew up within a or were raised within a 50 mile, 100 mile radius. And in a place like Phoenix, you've got so many new people moving there. Um, at, at the time that I was there, I think at its peak, it was like 90 to 110,000 people moving there per year. So mm. when you have that kind of influx of activity, you've got a very, um, a much more of an open society. So in a place like Detroit, I've been here now four years, and you know, as much as I, I love Detroit and try to rep Detroit, people are like, yeah, but you didn't go to high school here. You weren't born here. You're not, you know, you cool. But you're not from Detroit. Phoenix was a place that within 18 months of being there and kind of you could get involved and plugged in in a way that allow you to impact kind of policy and structure. So what's interesting about that, it was a very diverse place from the perspective of it's it's probably as race neutral on the face of it as any places I've, I've ever been. But a lot of that's because there were the majority of the people weren't from there. As it relates to the Latino community, though, it was interesting because you really had 
at least two, if not three different buckets of Latinos. And by that, I mean, so normally when you think about Latinos and you think about um, the, the Southwest, you're thinking about Mexicans primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, you've got the, you, we also had a variety of Indian Native American reservations around there, the Gila mm-hmm. and some other Native American tribes had reservations around there. And so, and the policy discussion was interesting because those who were third, fourth, fifth generation, because you had a lot of people who, you know, would say, I didn't go to the U.S., the U.S. came to me. Yeah, meaning, and I, I, meaning gonna, that their family, I always give that argument so, because I, I tell them, I'm like, that's Aztec territory. Yeah, but the in the first place, I mean, a lot of it is, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like when people talk about Texas or whatever, it's like they're crossing the border. I'm like, we actually crossed their border. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with you. But what's interesting, even in that community, there's a split. So what we yeah, found true. is a lot of folks that were third, fourth, fifth generation would say, well, my grandparents went through all of this pain to get here. So yeah. a lot of the people that drove that conservative agenda in many cases Work. cases had Latino roots yeah. or Hispanic roots. Mm-hmm. And then and then um, I would find that a lot of the new population, the new Latin population, mm-hmm. by and large, was not involved in the conversation. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about Phoenix or Arizona, I would say, is it comes off as a very conservative place. But it's really, there's two things I would say. One is that it's really libertarian. And so it's really much more about, you know, we don't want government in our lives and we want to be able to to drive our own path. That's a lot of what comes off as conservatism. Then the second piece of it is, I think, because the weather's so great, the quality of life is so high, much of the population isn't plugged into pop into politics at all. Mm-hmm. So you've got a kind of a structure that's been in place and it just kind of continues to promulgate and, and perpetuate itself. Okay. So, yeah, this is just from the outside looking in. Yeah. But I guess libertarianism leans more along the lines of conservatism Absolutely. as uh, when Absolutely. we think about democratic uh, agendas, it fights for uh, government, I guess, being more involved in the lives of people as government is supposed to be an institution that provides more uh, resources yeah. for people. So, Absolutely right. So it's more like in, in, in the convenience mm-hmm. of the argument. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 lying on the cons- I'm, I'm lying with the conservative and the Republican. That's right. Not necessarily agreeing. I just don't want any government in my life. That's right. That's right. So you know, so it was an interest. So it was an interesting journey there because I think the the dynamics. It, it could be a different country than Detroit or South Carolina because the culture is so mm-hmm. distinct. And so I was there from you know to 2009, and uh, I loved it. It was a it was a good experience. I really, from an economic development perspective, a professional mm-hmm. perspective, that's really where I had my biggest growth and a lot of opportunities. Yeah, I was gonna say you were really hitting your stride. That was like yeah. the, the long lap. Uh, no, it was like, it was great uh, because I got to do a little bit of everything yeah. from managing our board relations, which our board had sixty plus people on it for the Greater wow. Phoenix Economic Council, to lobbying for this um, for this uh, legislation to allow how did, for this. Um, how did uh, how, how did just because that's that's a complete different move too for your wife. I mean, what what was that like? I mean, just her that transition of family to a place like that uh to go from like DC over to Phoenix. Oh, she loved it. I mean, she she absolutely loved it, but I think what she really loved about it was the weather was good. Oh, okay. The quality of life was high. Mm-hmm. I mean, the schools were were good. Uh, it was it's an easy place to live. I, I, there's not even a better way to say it. it's a place that, you know, you don't it's cleaner. That it's very, it's much cleaner out west than it is mm-hmm. out uh, out east. So it was a clean place. The quality of life was good. Um, she missed her family, of course, um, mm-hmm. being from from the D.C. area. But I think 
um, the other stuff just overshadowed it. It was it was fun. So from there, where did you go? So from there, I went to Louisiana. Um, so I was the uh, the number two at the Baton Rouge Area Chamber of Commerce. I was executive vice president, mm. which was a great great experience for me. Baton Rouge is a little you know community uh, has about a million people in the Baton Rouge area. Very 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 familiar with Baton Rouge. I like I mean I like the boot all together. But, yeah, uh, very familiar. Yeah, so my you know my older uh, boy played uh, played. We went to LSU's lab school mm-hmm. and played football there and. Uh, Baton Rouge was great, and about it, and about it, you know, it was a place where you could stay for 30, 40 years and just, you know, have a very, very uh, easy life. It was very much like uh, a big college town. Yes, um, that's a, that's exactly what I think of when you I know, think of. Still has some, a lot of racial issues that are uh, that are not that hard. You know, you don't have to look very hard to see some of these <laughs> racial discrimination issues. Not, not at all. You you know which bar to not go to as a black person. It's yeah. Like, oh mean, man, that's a lot of F one fifties there. Yeah, exactly. Keep it moving. <laughs> a lot of stars and bars. <laughs> so, um, so I was in Baton Rouge about a year, year and a half, and I got recruited to New Orleans. And mm. it was interesting when I got the call about New Orleans going to head up the economic development there because the call kind of went like this, you know, you know, Rod Miller, you, you've come to our attention. Some people have said, you know, your background might be good. We're starting up this new economic development agency in New Orleans, and the reason why we're starting it, you know, we're a few years after Katrina now, and we need. We need to figure out how to professionalize our economic development practice and pull it out of out of politics. Mm. And uh, and I basically said I'm not interested. And uh, and being a man of faith, you know, I remember when Katrina hit, and I remember being mm. in Phoenix and looking at TV and getting so upset, mm. so upset at how people were being treated, uh, mm. and uh, and uh, and the and the. Uh, and whether it was the liberal left or the, the conservative right, I, I thought it was all a narrative that was not the right narrative around no, around, around, uh, around of New our Orleans. people. Yeah, for black people, mm-hmm. we were looking at. Um, it's so funny, like like I say, like I we were all like you know like a lot of white people remember. I mean, we as all Americans remember nine eleven, but we you know black America was glued to the TV. I was doing a. It was so funny. Um, you know, and people being called refugees and stuff like that. I was That's doing right. a, a hip hop open mic at the time, and there was this guy uh, that came like from New Orleans. Yeah, and he uh, he came and he, he came to rap, and uh, I remember this like the like you know to the day Yesterday. I died. Yeah, it it was snowing, and he was like, "What is this outside? This is mm. stuff falling." So we go outside and then it, and it's like wow it's like we really and then it just sparked up so many conversations with mm-hmm. him because like he never saw snow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was just he was world. living out of a motel uh, with like a stipend he, he he got from FEMA. It was just like damn, dude. I'm like, where's your family? He's like, well, my sister's here, my brother's there. It yeah. it just like I'm like, damn, like damn, this is mm-hmm. you know it, it was crazy. Yeah, no, it was it was crazy. So it was good. I mean, I was in New Orleans for four years, and it was it was wonderful because I got an opportunity to put together their economic development organization, put together their strategic plan for where the economy needs to go. How long uh, was their strategic plan? Was it twenty five? Uh, was it fifty? How long is it? It was a five year plan. Five realistically, year plan. realistically, most economists would tell you anything longer than five years is just it's a it's a vision, but it's not necessarily a plan. I agree, you but you know, like it's a lot years. that still stick to that whole concept of the twenty five year plan. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, when you're talking about large public works projects and infrastructure investments like that, um, from a land use planning perspective, sometimes it makes sense to do longer. But from an economic perspective, you can really only do about three to five years. So it was a five-year plan that outlined um, seven big principles around kind of how the economy should grow. Things like growing from within, um, focusing on building the talent of the workforce, um, things like uh, entrepreneurship, uh, concepts such as uh, uh creating the right type of uh, linkages to global markets, those kinds of things. So um, so it was a great experience in, in, in New Orleans and uh, and really, you know, got to see a lot of progress over the years that I was there. We brought in about 30,000 new jobs to the market and, mm. uh, and, uh, and, and helped bring a lot of population back. Still some challenges, of course, but the challenges weren't created in, 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 in a day or in a couple of years. No, so, but so I the think a lot of that was growing over time. As New Orleans is one of my favorite cities, but I'm one of those people, like, I feel like, I guess, um, you know, the Americans that were going to Cuba. It's like, I go to New Orleans for fun, but it's people that live there. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. So, I mean, what, was that, is, yeah. w- what was that relationship like uh, of that being such a, you know, and it has a culture, like, the culture of New Orleans, like, it just sticks out, like, I, I don't know, like, what was that like, just... Being there, having an understanding, growing a relationship with the people there and um, looking to open opportunities for people that want to do business in a in an equitable way, mm-hmm. but also providing a balance for the people that are there or, or, or really have been displaced and coming back. I mean, part of it, part of it is smart economic strategies recognize that at the center of it, you can't just bring in new stuff because you got to work with the people that were there and that are there and make sure that there are opportunities. Most people don't have an issue with new people coming to their communities. They have an issue where new people have opportunities they don't have. And so a lot of my work there really centered around um, making sure that there were opportunities for locals to participate, whether it was contracting opportunities, whether it was new businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So making sure that there was that there was equal, a keen focus on local economic opportunity, just like there was a focus on mm-hmm. attracting and bringing in new companies. Were you working with uh, Mayor Ray Nagin? And it's so funny. Like I, I, I look at his story and the way that he's painted a lot like Mayor Kilpatrick, where some of it, it seems like, man, I see so many politicians do this. Like, is was it illegal because they were black or something like like what? Uh, well, I think you know. I think Mayor Nagin, he was there. Um, I came right after he, his his term was over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I, I think you know Mayor Nagin. You know, um, he's the, one of the most likable people I've ever met in my life. Um, but I would say a lot of the the things there were some things he did that were wrong um, legally or ethically. Um, but I also think you know there was a lot of uh, trauma and stress that he had. Post Katrina, a lot of folks feel like he had a mental breakdown, mm-hmm. and that uh, you know, and that probably one of the biggest errors that he made um, was his failure to govern. Um, yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't even a thing of where he was governing badly. There were times when we had. I mean, it's a unprecedented challenge. Like, how do you? Mm-hmm. But you had you, like. You had like government come in there, you know, um, the Economic Development Administration with a check for a million dollars to start my organization, and he wouldn't take the meeting. You had stuff like that happening. Mm. So it was, a, it was a case of where I think he really went into a depression, and a lot of his behavior as a byproduct yeah. of that um, was stuff that unfortunately, you know, led to his his down downturn. But um, he's a he's a person who I think, you know, I don't know if he's still in in prison or not now, but hopefully. Um, he'll be able to, to come out and, and do some good things in the community. I think people overall liked him and understood that mm-hmm. um, he made some mistakes, but those are humans make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So to Detroit next. Yeah. Coming to the city here. 
What led you here? You know, it was another one, another one of those kind of calls. And when I came to Detroit, I, I really, when I came, I really wasn't that interested in the in the job. Um, Did you, hopefully you didn't come in the winter time. I came. It wasn't winter. I came in the spring. <laughs> But I was kind of like not that interested in the job mm-hmm. because, unfortunately, Detroit's reputation was that, you know, it was a hard place to work, hard place to do business, that there that it was going to be a, a difficult, not just a difficult challenge from the perspective of the work, but the ability to, the freedom and space to do the work and for a lot of different reasons that whether it was a challenge I wanted to take. Mm-hmm. But as I rode around the city and as I met people, I was, you know, I really fell in love with the people in the city of Detroit and, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and uh, and the opportunity, you know, the organization, the DGC, the Detroit Economic Growth Corporation, you know, seemed like it was in a uh, had a lot of the tools that would be helpful to making an economy, you know, mm-hmm. stronger if if harnessed and positioned in the right way. And as I thought about the role, knowing most of the people in this field, I said there are only a few people that I think would be good for this this role, and I don't think. Most of them would take They're it. They're not going to take it. So, so almost so, like so, a, so, another so, situation where. And I'm like, if this is the work that I'm supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. and this is a community that I, I relate to, why wouldn't I invest some time and some effort in trying to figure out how to be a part of its recovery? What's your family saying as you're like, yo, we're about, we're about to move to Detroit? What, what well, you know, it? by this time I'm divorced, mm-hmm. and so it's just me and my little boy. And my okay. little boy, he's 11 years old now. Um, so I'm a single dad, and my little boy is like, if he's with his dad, he's good. So okay, what about like your your parents, uh, your 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 uncles? Your they know cousins, Roderick. What, what they say? They know Roderick. They were like, you know what, Rod, if you, if this is a challenge you think you can take, you know, realize that I had lived in Phoenix. I hadn't really have any family there. I'd lived in the D.C. area. I really didn't have any family there. I'd lived in Boston. So they kind of said, you know what, we know that you are one that. You take risks, but they're measured risk, and you're doing what you think is best. Go for it. And they've always said go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so they were extraordinarily supportive, and uh, and got here, and uh, you know now I've been here now going on four years, and you know what? Don't don't regret having having made the move to Detroit. You know, have made some really really good relationships, and feel good about some of the work we were able to get done while I was at the DGC. Okay, now you're consulting yourself, and, and more so than talking about the DGC. I just want to talk about the landscape. But through the DGC, you have a different lens of seeing this. As uh, another book that I'm reading, I often do this. Like I'll read like four or five books at a time, like go through a chapter mm-hmm. or whatever. But hard stuff. Uh, the autobiography of Coleman Alexander Young, mm-hmm. great read. I suggest reading it. And he speaks explicitly about the racism, like almost like the forward is is a forward saying. Racism in Detroit is real. Uh, and his family came here uh, escaping. Um, his father murdered uh, murdered a, a Ku Klux Klansman. Um, coming here, his grandfather murdered a Ku Klux Klansman. Came to Detroit in the middle of the night <laughs> after this murder. Um, because that Klansman was also uh, on the police department in Alabama. Uh, and he's like, even comparable to what we faced in Alabama, racism here was in a different tone and temperature. And this is still a very bureaucratic city. And Coleman's uh, explicit policies of 50-50 hiring and 50-50 contracting black-owned businesses because it's that many black people uh, was applauded at a time uh, when he was first elected. And looking back at it, you know, uh, it, it's what many mm. people outside the region, you know, it, when we mm. think of like Metro Detroit, what caused a lot of the segregation. But looking back at it, I, um, 
You know, what do you think of practices like that? What What do you think of of that exists? Because there is still so much segregation that exists in this region. Um, and and does it take like explicit practices like that to to get the inclusion of people, black people into a city that is 80 percent black? Um what's your take on stuff like that? It, it, so, you know, it so, steps back, you know? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think there's a couple of things I would say. I would say, you know, probably some of the some of the racism that I've experienced here or discrimination, I'm not, there's a, a fine line between the two, is probably in some ways worse than anything I've seen other places that I've been because I felt like, by and large, whether it was the business community or the political community, um, there was an expectation that as a black man you should be okay with um, with your decisions being uh, seconded, or with your with with you should just be happy to be in a role. You're in a big rod. You're in a big role. You're in a big seat. You know, it just chill out and relax. And I think you know, just don't think. Um, like basically, like be a token and go along with the get along. You said that I didn't. Yes. What I would say though is that um, there definitely was a a sense that you know what what makes you think that you can actually make certain types of decisions or that, it's a, or that you can actually have a voice that's your own voice. And so I think, you know, um, and I'm not going to say where that came from, but I think there that's an overwhelming element of the culture. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just white people. Uh, it was largely white people, but it wasn't just white people. There were black people who said, yeah, that's the way it is and you should be okay with it. Now, and I think, now as you talk about the black people that say, yeah, that's the way it is, I, I still even I, I agree uh, mm-hmm. that does exist. It, it it is a certain like yeah that's just how well, things happen. The ones here. that the ones that could, the ones that can actually influence things are the ones that say that's the way it is. The yeah. Others that can't actually influence things are one like man you could fight the power but you fight well, the power I know by exactly, yourself. So that's I, I, yeah, the dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the person that yes it's like you know like the 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 headaches that you you know God forbid. Like, like I always say, it's like, God forbid you're at a table of influence where you can provide this opportunity to somebody that never got that opportunity, yeah. where you're not going to be ostracized because those mm-hmm. risks that Coleman Young took in the 70s and mm-hmm. the 80s mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, are, the, are the direct reason why federal and state resources mm-hmm. continue to stop coming to Detroit because mm-hmm. it was like, yo, you're going to be like that? Well, then we're not going to give you the access to that anyway. Yeah. So it's like we're going to stop. We're gonna we're gonna yeah. make sure that the HUD funding that comes to Detroit either goes through the people we wanted to go through, or you ain't getting it. Well, you know, right now as a consultant, I'm doing a lot of work in Puerto Rico, and I see um, a lot of parallels there. When you look at their entire economy, including the things that led to the bankruptcy, have been completely the byproduct of U.S. policy towards Puerto Rico for the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. And but now, as things are crumbling, it's like, oh, the incompetent, corrupt people in Puerto Rico are the reason why they have these financial issues. Yeah. And now, unfortunately, this sad hurricane is taking it down to another level. But when, but when one objectively looks at U.S foreign policy as it relates to Puerto Rico over the, over the last hundred years, the bankruptcy that they're going through is a direct byproduct of many of the U.S. policies that have been put in place. And now they're trying to figure out how do they navigate a path forward in a construct where they have no representation from at a, at a federal level and that the way that the funds are flowing from the feds down to local government provide limited scope for them to actually be able to make strategic investments. So those are the kinds of structures that are put on um, 
on neo-colonial structures that are put on different societies and you have to respond yeah. to it. And so uh, I see a lot of parallels between kind of those challenges and some of the challenges in in, in Detroit, it's, but, but, but it's the nature of the communities that are, and I mean, we're speaking about it as if it's a racial thing, but it's even certain white communities, uh, you know, absolutely truck driver for a while, like in West Virginia and stuff like that, like mm-hmm. the Appalachian communities or whatever. It's mm-hmm. like these are resources that were never necessarily designed for, for people like you to be in this room, yeah. unless you have a representative of our, you know, uh, of absolutely. a certain class that's already in the mix. That's right. So, um. So, like, as you get inclusivity (laughs) of Mm -hmm. something that was exclusive, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it it becomes uh, 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 to advocate for something like that. Absolutely. You're fighting against systems. You're fighting against it. And so, you know. Where people are like, are you crazy? So, uh, so So, the reality of it is, you know what, at some day, if no... It's all incremental, unfortunately, but at, at the end of the day, you have to be able to look in the mirror and say, did I do my job? Did I have the integrity in the role? Did I push for things that matter? And when things when things stop making sense for me, how do you step aside and do something else? And so and I, and so I think that's all that we can ask for, for people to do as they, no matter what their job is or what their work is, that they have integrity in it. They try to push for the advancement of all people, you know, in, in those roles. And at the point where you can't do it anymore, you, you say, you know what, it's time for somebody else to take a swing at it. Now, uh, which which kind of leads me to another question of, uh, you know, I don't know, devil's advocate is a term that I'm going to use here. But do you think that there uh, that, you know, certain people are just better at allocating resources for communities that are labeled as suppressed or underdeveloped as opposed to the people that are part of those communities? Like, no, 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 no. I think, you know, I think what happens, though, I I think what happens is that in many cases um, there are there are structures that are put in place Mm -hmm. that kind of choke off communities and communities are being choked. And the leadership of that community, the local leadership, that community is trying to figure out how do I work in this scenario where all of these resources have been choked? And then somebody comes in that maybe looks a little different or from the outside, and then all of a sudden the resources flow up, flow from from the top, and it looks like they're a savior. And so I think a lot of times, you know, um, uh, a lot of times, you know, in the case of Detroit, for example, you know, the bankruptcy was painful and awful. Yeah. But I don't think any mayor could have been successful without the bankruptcy having had happened because you hadn't, there was no breathing room to actually make strategic investments. So those kinds of things, I think, are, are things that tend to happen. So it, a narrative develops that people of color can't run their own community or blah, 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 blah. But realistically, when you look at the policy and the funds that flow during whether it was Mayor Bing's reign or or other mayors reign, the the funds funds didn't necessarily flow the same way that they're flowing now, and you had the the the, the chokehold of a of a debt situation and a pension obligation situation that really didn't allow for the kind of freedom. So I think communities can govern themselves, but there has to be clear values and principles around where the growth is trying to go and where the economic economics of the community are. There has to be a clear vision, and there has to be um, clear oversight and transparency and accountability. And just like there are good there are good um, uh, black leaders, they're good white leaders. They're bad black leaders, they're bad white leaders. So it's really about you know making sure that communities have the kind of um, insight and perspective so that they can elect leaders or, or, or promote p- business uh, executives and things that represent their interests and that aren't going to be tainted. It's funny you touched on that. And I'm going to do like a whole series with Detroit is different. I want to interview everybody that's running for state rep soon. Mm-hmm. But 
oftentimes just blinded. Like when I think about this and I ask a lot of people like, you know, what I learned about local government, I had to independently seek out and find. As like mm-hmm. it, going through the Detroit public school system, it was no class in local mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. Uh, my 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 mom talks about like it was a booklet and, and a textbook and everything on local government. Mm-hmm. But just let's just say, for instance, uh, I've sat and I've seen people running for city council that talk about this is such an executive run city that it's like, OK, a city council, really, your primary objective is to uh, policies, see this budget. Yep. See through this budget, figure mm-hmm. out how much money is allocated for this budget, and that's pretty much it. You can make a task force, you can make a suggestion, you can show up at my meeting, but mm-hmm. you your 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 power in doing something is so different, or mm-hmm. state reps or whatever. You're a legislative body. Mm-hmm. But to me as a citizen, it's I'm so blinded by this um Mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. and sometimes I don't even know as the person that's in city council is I know a lot of people that run like well you know I figure if I can get in there then you know my name and then I can and it's like okay so basically you know nothing about legislation you are closer to the community Unfortunately. but like mm-hmm. like you know I, and I'm just saying a lot of people just don't know the roles that people play in a lot of these things I would agree, but you know, I don't think that's a Detroit specific problem. No, I think no, that's I everywhere. was going to say period. I mean, but I think you know, you know and, and and people get in these roles and then they try and figure out how to make it something different than what it is for whatever purpose they have, right? So I know the role is doing this, but I want to do that. So yeah, you know, charter that's commission the, was something, and I know a lot of those people that ran for that, and it's like, yo, man, we need a new charter, and we need a, and I'm like, you've never read the Detroit City Charter. Yeah. So to say that I want to be a charter commissioner, and it's like, yeah, you get a cool business card, yeah, but. To to write us uh, to write a charter for a municipality and you know nothing about municipal law you know nothing about municipal ordinances yeah. you've never sat in a, a meeting like that and I just yeah. know some of this because I I call it nerding out I, I nerd out on some stuff if That's I right. if I get into stuff but it it's challenging it's very challenging and some yeah. of the people that connect best with people are people that know nothing about this and some of the people that know a lot about it would never be able to get elected. I mean, the good thing is that they do have programs out there like Young Leaders Council. You know, they have other um, programs both on the conservative as well as on the liberal side to to train young people in governance to learn about how things work. And I think, you know, we just have to have more of that because um, a lot of times people don't remember what they learn in school anyway. So I think, you know, just making sure that we've got good mechanisms to put people into so that they can learn about these kinds of things is really, really essential. Yeah. And then also, I mean, just due to the, the legal jargon, when you read the the when you read the city of Detroit budget, I mean, it's going to take a, 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 a you really it's going to take a a. a a very particular amount of mental fortitude to mm-hmm. sit and go through that unless you have right. great understandings of finance. That's right. So I know we're wrapping up now. This has been a, a great, great discussion. I'd love to come back. We're going to have to get you back. I got to ask you some classic Detroit is different questions. But before we even get into that, if people want to follow up with you, connect with you, yeah. reach out, you drop so many gems. How do they get in contact with you? Roderick Miller, R-O-D-R-I-C-K, Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R, Roderick Miller at Ascendant, A-S-C-E-N-D-A-N-T-G-C.com. Roderick Miller at AscendantGC.com. Website is www.AscendantGC.com. Okay. All right. Um, 
Man, I wish I'd have got a crack at that contract. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, classic Detroit is different question. Uh, I'm going to just ask you two. Because one, I, I generally ask rename Woodward after one Detroiter. But I'm going to be like those other Detroiters and be like, man, you ain't been here long enough <laughs> for that question. Um, first car. Uh, what year did you get it? What year was it made? What make and model? So I got this car and probably I was in high school. It would have been 1993 when I got the car. Oh, man, that was a great, great year in music. Yes, indeed. And it was a 1981 Cutlass Supreme. Oh, man. Oh. <laughs> and it was a, it I was may have to give him a Detroit car for having an 81 Cutty. Yes, oh! indeed. It was, you know, I paid oh. $500 for it, and it used to stop all the time. But uh, but I oh, love that car to death. Yeah, oh, man. I, I, I have a my whole social circle uh-huh. would love to restore that body, man. That, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that was amazing. That was 81, great. 82, 83, and 84 Cutlass Supreme mm-hmm. and Monte Carlos, those were like, oh, man, those were the cars to own. Yeah, no, my- it, it was great. And then, you know, I had that car. And then when I went off to school, I got it. I I was able to get a newer car. I got a 1984 Dodge Laser, which mm. was also, you know, this car was a little sports car. And I I had the seat sitting all the way back into the back seat. You had the six five. I had the, yeah, I'm 6'5". So I had that bucket sit, seat sitting all the way back, and it was like a little jet. So, you know, oh, I, I enjoy those cars. I, w- I would buy one today if I saw it. Uh, at 81, if, if, if it doesn't end up, uh, you definitely need a good garage for that in Detroit because... <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like mm-hmm. those any car that was made where it's like, oh, rims are supposed to be on this. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like I knew people that saw Training Day like four times in a row just to look at the car. But um, okay, so uh, then where did you go? What was the first place you went when you got your ride? Your oh, first ride. Let me tell you, I, I I went on a date with a young lady. Oof. Uh, and oh. uh, and I thought I was had it going on. Brian McKnight's One Last Cry CD had just come out. <laughs> I had put Brian McKnight One Last Cry in. You know, I thought I could sing too. Oh my gosh, it was it was on and popping. You know, oh, <laughs> oh, we man, went to, we went to dinner at like Applebee's and went to the movies. But I, you know, I, I went and picked her up in my car. It was clean too. You know, oh man, the first the first you went you did it in style. You most people be like, man, I just went to school. So yeah, it's man. like, oh, you went on a date for your first ride. And That's she was right. like, I thought we were taking the bus. Uh-huh. Like, no, I, like, nah. I ain't taking the bus. I got my cutty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. All right. Um, it's the end of the Detroit fireworks. And you're on Woodward and Jefferson. You're the DJ. You get to play three songs for the crowd. What are you playing? Ooh, Woodward and Jefferson. It's, it's the, the end, end of the Detroit fireworks. Fireworks. Ooh, now that's a good. That's a, ooh, that's good. You know, and given the, the mix of people that are there, too. My gosh. You got, and, and like I tell people. You can be, it's, you're the DJ. So mm-hmm. you can be one of them DJs that doesn't even care about the crowd so, or you can try to try to please them. Well, the first thing is I would play Respect, Aretha Franklin Respect. Mm. You okay. know, because, you know, you got to love Aretha. You know, it's one of those things that cuts across generations. Everybody just, you got you to gotta feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second song, <laughs> no. <laughs> the second song, I think I would play. I think I would play something by Michael Jackson. You know, anything. You gotta pick a song. And so if I were gonna play something by Michael Jackson, I know what I would play. I'll tell you after. I'll tell you after you pick your selection. Michael, if I pick Mike, 
If I play something by Michael, he had so many hits, it's hard hard to say. I would probably play um, Thriller. I'd okay. Play Thriller. I probably play Thriller. Uh, I was I was torn between you know I was like Thriller, Man in the Mirror, Beat It, you know. But I think I would probably play Thriller. I play Working Day and Night. Oh, would you really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's classic. I mean, just the the, the percussion. Oh yeah, I like that. That's good stuff. And then I think, hmm, this is just feel good music. I probably would play something by Frankie Beverly and Maze. A lot of people pick Maze, but let's see what song you pick. Mm, that's a good question. Hmm. I'm on the corner of Woodward and Jefferson. Yep. Mm, 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 mm. What would I play? Now, I said Frankie Beverly Mays. Actually, I'm thinking Earth, Wind, and Fire. Okay, a lot of people also pick the elements, too. Uh, you, you know, you got to love the Earth, Wind, and Fire. I think if I was playing something by Earth, Wind, and Fire... I would play. Oh my gosh. Hmm. Let's see if you pick the song that Kim Taddy picked, because she went with the elements last. And then Gia Kai went with the elements. Oh wow. Everybody loves the element. You know, I'm thinking about the time of the year, but I'm like, you know what? I, I already know what you're about to say. <laughs> but I'm like, I love September. <laughs> that is the that I September, love September. September is climbing the charts of uh fireworks songs. So whoever is coordinating the fireworks <laughs> I mean I'm like I'm like I know it's July, but I'm like you I mean Earth Wind and Fire, <laughs> September, you just like it just takes you somewhere. <laughs> Do you remember? Oh yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> you know. So oh, yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's good stuff. Thank you so much. This Thanks was a great me. interview. We definitely going to get you back. This was great. Awesome, man. I better get running. Right. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Download the app today on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.